0: This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producer's credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Fuse listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be delving into a rather serious and often under-discussed topic, namely the secret, the hidden ethnic cleansing of Armenians by Azerbaijan. The subject was recently covered in a powerful documentary, The Desire to Live, which has since also become a web series. Joining us is the producer of that documentary and web series, Peter Balwanian. We'll be discussing the long history of Armenian persecution from the Armenian Genocide of 1915 to the present day, and why there has been so much silence when it comes to this issue in the United States. Hint. It may have something to do with the Turkish Azeri and even Israel lobbies in America. In addition to all of this, we'll also discuss the Nagorno Karabakh conflict, the rise of Turkey's president Erdogan and his consolidation of power, as well as how it relates to the story of Armenian persecution, the strength and perseverance of the Armenian people of the Republic of Artsakh, and much, much more. A quick note that this conversation was recorded late last month in March. At that time, Turkey was delaying Finland from joining NATO. Shortly after this conversation, however, that changed with Turkey agreeing to ratify Finland's membership. On off the hills of this happening, the United States has agreed to sell Turkey $259 million in F-16 fighter jet equipment. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Peter Balanian, producer of The Desire to Live, a documentary about the secret ethnic cleansing of Armenians by Azerbaijan. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I am very excited to be speaking with, Peter Belawanian, producer of the documentary The Desire to Live, which is about the persecution of Armenians by Azerbaijan uh, after the second Nagorno-Karabakh War. Uh, Welcome to the show, Peter.
1: Hi there. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show, Michael. So,
0: Peter, if you could, uh, for people that don't know the background of this situation, uh, could you talk about the sort of prehistory, predating this 2020 war that broke out and, and what the Armenian population has gone
1: through? Sure, uh, basically it all started when the um, the Soviet Union broke down and obviously all the republics in the Soviet Union became countries, Armenia being one and Azerbaijan being another. And at that time, there was a region inside Azerbaijan which basically predominantly was Armenian, uh, meaning 95% of the population were evidence were Armenian of the region. Uh, which is also referred to as nagorno karabakh And nagorno karabakh is also referred to as Artsakh by Armenians. Now, in this region, the Armenians decided, even before the Soviet Union's collapse, to vote democratically and to, to separate and have a sovereign state or to be attached to Armenia instead of being under the Azerbaijani Republic. And all this was happening while they were still under the Soviet regime. Now, the uh, the elections went through. They voted. They wanted to liberate from them. And all this started because, obviously, in the 1920s, Stalin had decided upon himself to separate Armenia and the people uh, into different uh, sections so that he can rule the countries better. So this was a decision made at that time. So it wasn't really uh, a real uh, territorial dispute. It was really set by the Soviet regime back in the day. And then the Armenians wanted to correct that issue and didn't want to be under the Azerbaijani rule. So the Azerbaijanis didn't uh, find that uh, pill to swallow easily, and they decided to take harsh actions. And it all started with pogroms within Azerbaijan. Uh, the first one that I know of was in Sumgat, another one in Baku, and several other ones throughout the times. And these pogroms were basically... Uh, Armenians being dragged out of their homes, beaten, uh, killed, raped. I mean, you know, very, very difficult situations for people that lived in that area and lived in Azerbaijan for, you know, for a very long time. Because obviously, Azerbaijan and Armenia have been neighbors for centuries. Well, let's let's correct that. Now, Azerbaijan uh, as a country only started over hundred years ago. Yeah, before that, they were known as Azerbaijan. They were part of, you know, they they come from the Tatar tribes and they basically relocated in the region, you know, at certain times. But, you know, for, for a while, the tribes were there and Armenians lived side by side. And a lot of Armenians also back in historically Armenian history, most of the lands of that area were Armenian, Armenian empires, Armenian kings back in centuries, centuries ago. But obviously, after several wars and time, Armenian Armenian power had become less and less and the land itself it's a very small land left in Armenia that basically uh, is considered as Armenia and uh you know this is the this is the fight now to keep that land and now the people in uh, Nagorno Karabakh uh they couldn't do anything about the fact that Azerbaijan didn't accept their their sovereignty didn't accept their separation And that's when the 1990 war started, 1990, 1991, all the way to 1994. So while the Soviet Union was breaking down, that's when the clash over territories between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And obviously, the uh, people in Nagorno-Karabakh protected themselves by going to war. And they were, you know, they're literally farmers and, you know, people that lived in the lands. And, you know, the, the Caucasus are... They call them the high Caucasus because they're liber- literally mountainous regions. You know, people live up in the mountains. It's difficult territory to live in, but they've been living there for centuries. This is their the only land they know. And at the time when the war happened, there was a lot of lives ha- lost, you know, over the three-year period. Over 100,000 people died from both sides. It was a terrible war for both sides. And I think what happened is that once the war ended, everybody on the Armenian side, figured, you know, it was brutal, let's move on, and now let's try to build, you know, our future as a country, because don't forget, this democracy was a very new thing. So they had to work hard to try to see how they can become a democratic country. And till today, obviously, Armenia uh, fights to stay democratic, uh, but Azerbaijan took another path. You know the country has been led by the same family now the same ruler for the last 20 years or 18 years, which is uh, his name is Aliyev. You know he's become a dictator of that country. Uh, freedoms are very, uh, very little uh, in living as an as an Azerbaijani. So obviously Armenians never want to live under that rule. Uh, and you know when the after the war a lot of the Azerbaijani's. That lived in Armenia or in the region of the Caucasus moved out and went into Azerbaijan, and uh, most of the Armenians that lived in Azerbaijan moved to Armenia or in the Caucasus. So basically, divided people population. But for thirty years, you know, we lived uh, accordingly to the rules that were set within the Treaty of nineteen ninety four, where when the war ended, and the borders that were protected back then, the Armenians controlled those lands. And they basically held control over them until 2020. And, you know, Azerbaijan basically built their military for the last 10 years, and uh, they decided to attack in 2020. And it was a brutal war for 44 days uh, where over 5,000 Armenian lives were lost. I'm not sure how many Azerbaijanis were lost because it doesn't, they don't clarify They don't uh, share that with the public. Until now since the end of that war uh from 2020 uh, end of 2020 the armenians in the the population in agernagar park in the artsakh region have been basically held hostage in a sense because the azeris now have circled all over the that territory and uh the only road in and out is the lachin corridor and the lachin corridor is basically uh, was their lifeline, you know, to the to the people of Artsakh. Uh, the airports were closed because the air airspace was controlled by Azerbaijan. So the only way food and medication would go in is through the Lachin corridor. And now, for over a hundred days, there's been a blockade. Uh, Azerbaijanis have blocked that road, and basically um, nobody's able to come in and out except for you know Red Cross and uh, the Russian peacekeepers. So, this is where we're at now. It's a very volatile situation. Um, and uh, we're just, they, every day something new is happening.
0: If you could, when we look at past persecution of Armenians, like how would you compare uh, the human rights abuses happening now to uh, what happened in 1915 with Armenians and the Ottoman Empire?
1: Well, 1915 was a gruesome genocide where the Armenians that lived under the Ottoman regime back in the day were were basically systematically um, planned to be either relocated or killed. And a, a, over a million and a half Armenians died in that period of time. Uh, it all started, you know, the, we, we mark it as April 24th. That's when the Turkish rule decided to round up all the the intelligent um, and the aristocrat, Armenians, uh, the priests, uh, people in power and hanged them. And that's how we we recognize that day. But then that genocide continued on for a full year into different villages. And as Armenians dispersed from the that side of the Turkey, which is which is Eastern Turkey um, now, uh, no Armenians live there at this point. You know, they they basically, there is a population of Armenians in Istanbul. But other than that, most almost all the Armenians in the regions of, let's say, um, uh, Urfa or uh, Antep, you know, the Ghazi Antep, where the earthquake was hit, that was predominantly an Armenian town. Over 300,000 Armenians were killed in that town alone. You know, I mean, it was a gruesome, gruesome genocide where I don't know if if um i can compare it till now just because physically and obviously population wise so many people had had perished now what i realized is throughout the research i've done is genocide really is in many forms uh the genocide of people obviously the physical killing and mass murders of people is one form and the other genocide is the is the cultural genocide the historical genocide where you know you start erasing people's in you know past and history which turkey has uh, legitimately done for centuries and azerbaijan has been doing for the last 50 years or at least 30 years since the war uh azerbaijan has basically gone in and taken over you know armenian towns and then you know r- run over to their cemetery cemeteries of um, taken the old churches uh, from like 3rd century, 4th century, 5th century and basically have, you know, turned them into mosques or destroyed them so basically that 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 genocide continues, so what's happening now is almost a continuation, It's and you know when a genocide is not um, held accountable, the people that are the perpetrators of the genocide are not held accountable, and in the case of the Turkish perpetrators all three leaders the pashas were en- ended up being assassinated even though they were found guilty and they were put to death they weren't act they were had escaped from from their you know uh persecution and then eventually were actually individually assassinated in different places and that was uh, uh you know armenians had decided that they're going to take uh, you know some decisions into their own hands now when when it comes to the accepting the genocide, Turkey has never recognized the genocide. He's always they've always come out with a with a motion of that it's been uh, part of war and it was uh, Armenian elitists or Armenian revolutionaries within the country that they were fighting uh, at the time. But that's all bull. Uh, you know, everybody in the world knows that it was a genocide. Uh, And but Turkey had never recognized it. And thus, Azerbaijan has never recognized it. And some of the other countries around that are allies with each other have never recognized it, like Pakistan. So all of this, the fact that you, you don't recognize the genocide, you continue to try to eliminate the culture, the history, the identity of the Armenians. And there's an effort, ongoing effort right now by Azerbaijan. I mean, they spend a ton of money online just to try to rewrite their history and transfer Armenian history into Azerbaijani history all of a sudden all these places that Armenians live in uh were never really Armenia and or Armenian and now they've become uh, old Azeri towns you know it's it's an interesting thing when you see it online and you cross paths with it online and you realize how much of an effort there is out there and how much money is being spent for this
0: so one thing I wanted to mention here since we mentioned Turkey I mean I I think for people that don't know, Azerbaijan and Turkey are very close. So it's important to understand that. Um, One frame that I've seen given to this issue between Armenians and Azerbaijan is uh, that this is sort of the Christian Armenian population versus the Muslim uh, Azerbaijani population. I'm, I'm kind of weary of framing things in terms of religion. So I wanted to get your thoughts. Is this about religion? Is it about land? Uh, could you delve a little bit more into that?
1: You know, it's it's hard not to use. You see the religious side of it, even though it's not the main factor at this point uh, with Azerbaijan and Armenia. But I know for a fact that when it was uh, the the genocide in nineteen fifteen, the Christian Armenians, and not only the Armenians, the Christians. Uh, were basically massacred. So it was a major factor back in the day because back then the Greek, the Greek, the Assyrians and the Armenians, all of them were Christians, all minorities, and they were all picked on and they were all massacred. So it wasn't just the Armenians that went through this process. So Now with Azerbaijan, Armenia doesn't see it as a Christian uh, war or a Muslim war or religious war. It just sees it as an enemy that basically... Uh, didn't get over the fact that they they lost land in in the you know 1990 to 94 war and from that point on, they created Armenia phobia in their country. you know Azerbaijan for 30 years, if I speak to a 25 year old or a 30 year old from Azerbaijan, they think I'm a demon as an Armenian. I'm, I'm the devil. So they've been brainwashed. they've been programmed to hate Armenians. To think that Armenians are basically sent by you know the devil and there were you know we have horns and we eat babies all of these things back in the day it's almost almost how the Germans used that propaganda with the the Nazis used it you know against the Jews and how the Jews were dehumanized Armenians have been dehumanized right now in the eyes of Azerbaijanis and it's it's crazy because. Because of social media, because obviously you have access to people inside the country and outside of the country, conversations go on and I I, I can't even uh, comprehend how these p- people can even assume that, you know, things are real when they don't even know anything about Armenians. Most people are arguing, talking about Armenian history, and yet they have no idea, no concept. They haven't done any research at all, they haven't even picked up a book outside of Azerbaijan, and that's the problem because Azerbaijan has spent a ton of money programming their population to hate Armenians, create this Armenia phobia, and it starts really early, early on. You know, we have videos showing children in kindergarten, and their they're, the teachers are teaching them to basically hate Armenians and to show on the map where their enemy is. I mean, this is preposterous. This it's a it's a very Terrible situation for their population. And in a way, I feel bad because they've been cheated in a sense, uh, focused on an enemy outside. While the enemy is really inside, it's it's Aliyev and the family, which have stolen, you know, so much money from and so much riches from that country. Most of their population is basically poor. They, they live in terrible situations, yet that country is is so uh high up in the oil ranking. You know, they have deals all over the place, but it's just very few people making money. The Aliyev family rule that, that country. And as long as Aliyev focuses their the inside uh, uh, issues towards the Armenians and blames the Armenians for everything, then, uh, then the population just follows that, you know, kind of uh, rule. And, and that's where we find, you know, that that's the problem where, you know, you can't even make sense to the population, with the population when you're having a conversation. Now, there is an uprising, you know, that has to be. Uh, Eventually, you know, Aliyev, you know, imprisons enough people and tortures enough people of of his own that there's an uprising. But again, he still has the upper hand and most of the people are still driven with this Armenia phobia.
0: It's really terrifying watching Uh, this documentary and just hearing some of the horror stories that Armenians uh, in this region have experienced Uh, just the, it's almost like they're living under constant surveillance by the Azeris. Uh, What is it that the Azeris want and how much does uh, resources play into what they want? Um, I, I know you talk a little bit about the sort of resources like copper and, you know, chip manufacturing minerals and whatnot. Could you speak about that?
1: Yeah. um, You know, I really think that the plan is is set out by Erdogan, which is Turkey's leader. And I feel like his whole grand plan, which he started publicly doing, uh, saying it in his speeches back in 2015, 2016, how he is sent as the next um, uh, sultan for the pan-Turkism, and he wants to basically bring Turkey's power from one end of the sea to the other, all the way reaching to China. So th- this whole thing started a while back. And I feel like Turkey plays a big part, but they're they're almost like the, the marionette uh, handler. You know, the Azerbaijan, just like the Kurds were back in 1915, which uh, executed the orders of the Turks, you know, to... to you know, basically bring the Armenians into the desert or drive them out and you know, torture them, kill them. The Kurds played a big part then. And eventually they realized what had happened and came to terms with it and obviously accepted it, apologized. And the Armenians have and Kurds have now moved on to uh, as as racists and moved move forward. Now Azerbaijan's playing the same role as the Kurds did back in the day as their hunchmen, the Turks hunchmen. And this whole plan really is to ta- to wipe out all Armenians from that land, take over that whole area completely, make it into a complete kind of like pan-Turkish, uh, you know, air- zone that they rule. And, you know, this is not his speeches. It's not. I'm not making this up. It's in Turkish. I get it translated so I can understand what he says. And he literally sees himself as this next Mustafa, this next Sultan this next heir for the Turks. And I think Azerbaijan is just their, their kind of you know tool to use because Azerbaijan is now in conflict with Armenia.
0: I just wanted to comment on that real quick. For people that are unfamiliar uh, with Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, I mean, he definitely is someone that wants to throw around his weight and wants Turkey to be a sort of player within the uh, world. You know, he always gives these speeches talking about you know the world is bigger than five which you know in sentiment i agree with that but really what he's sort of saying there is you know it's more like six or seven and you know turkey should be a major player it's it's sort of about consolidating turkey's power especially within its own region
1: well you have to give him credit he's done incredible incredible things for in a sense of getting power into turkey into his hands i mean just the fact that his military is one of the largest in the world right now. The fact that he's part of the UN. So they they place themselves in a position where they have a lot of countries hostage. And I say hostage, I mean literally hostage. Most of Europe is being held hostage by the refugee camps that Turkey holds from the Syria war. You know, all of those people, millions of people that are in these camps, all Erdogan does is... If you guys don't give me what I want, I'm going to release half a million of them into your country. And none of them want it. Germany doesn't want it. Uh, you know, none of the European countries want extra, you know, refugees, obviously. So Turkey's got this positioning right now. And he, Erdogan is a very intelligent man. I have to admit, as much as I despise him as a human being, you know, I see the fact that he's he's put himself in a position of power. Now there's the elections coming up, and obviously, you know, there'll there'll be a fight to see if his uh, opposition is is gonna beat him or not, but since the coup or attempted coup in Turkey several years back, you know Erdogan literally eliminated all his enemy into the in the country, and a lot of people say that that coup was kind of set in a way where so that he can assume more power of the country, you know, as a dictator. So he's he's put himself as the major players, and he's up there. You know, he, I have to say he's up there. Everybody now has to use Turkey as a country to, to kind of use in a war system. In any war now that's been going on, and if you look at it, Turkey has associated himself with the Russia as well. So now, all of a sudden, the dynamics and the power has changed completely. Where Russia and, and Turkey were always against each other, now Russia and Turkey have uh, been allies in the last few years, Uh, and Azerbaijan so now we don't even know who's the bad guy who's the good guy when you look at him just clean up because everybody's making money and i think it's this oligarch you know the whole oligarch approach where people that become end up become authoritarian leaders of their countries and they stay there forever and that's what that's what erdogan's plan is he wants to be there forever that's what putin has obviously done that's what Aliyev has done. You know, all of these major players, these old, you know, like oligarchs or all, all these mafiosos of the day, have now become, you know, leaders, country leaders, and they don't want to give up control. And this is it. This all these these dictators have all come together now, and it's now this fight between democracy or authoritarian regimes. And this is what the world is is now separated into.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to add for clarification when I when I mentioned the whole. Uh, the world is bigger than five, just for my listeners' sake. That's sort of Erdogan's move to say that Turkey should be part of the uh, permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. So he's making moves there. Uh, and he's also, you know, Turkey's also a member of NATO, uh, which I think is interesting. Do you think that plays a role in why maybe the U.S. hasn't always been very loud about the situation involving Armenians?
1: I For sure. Absolutely. I mean, the the fact that not only NATO, but you even places like UNESCO, right, cultural things, like organizations that are supposed to be supporting or protecting cultural heritage of countries around the world, you know, Turkey's placed themselves really high up that ladder. And yeah, they do want to be part of that five. They want to be the sixth one. They don't want 10. They just want to be added in there for themselves because they want to have that power. And they're blocking... You know, I think recently they had blocked uh, Sweden and Finland to get into the UN. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, or some some European nation union that they had they had vetoed them or stopped them. So they're doing everything. Well, I know possible. they
0: can do a lot to stop. Yeah, you know, uh, any decisions involving NATO. You
1: That's know, right. They and are they did. Of NATO. and they did because I mean that their general is part of the NATO army. You know, NATO is is. Right now, if you think about the, the amount other than the U.S. and China, they're the third biggest. I don't know what Russia is at now, but, you know, they're, they're right up there. And, you know, Turkey has control over that. So they put the position themselves really well. And unfortunately, it's never good for Armenians when, when the Turks have more power, just because history. History keeps on repeating itself. And that one fact that the Turks did never recognize the genocide, they've doubled down. So therefore their goal is now to continue doubling down until they can get rid of any fact or evidence or any country that accepts the genocide or rules it as a genocide. And, you know, that's what they're aiming for. So until something drastic changes, you know, the Armenians are not looking good overall when it comes down to, first of all, the country, uh, or their situation for the future moving forward. Now, again, they're doing everything possible to be democratic, and I think that's the only way for them to survive in the future is to to really be a democratic country and then have the backing of all the rest of democratic countries around the world.
0: I want to give you a chance to respond to this. I know that Azerbaijanis or pro-Azerbaijani elements uh, will say, you know, we're just responding or we're worried about uh, you know, our future because of past atrocities that we feel were committed against us by the Armenians. How do you respond to that sort of narrative, or what's your counter to that narrative?
1: Well, I always wonder what past atrocities they're referring to, and then always there's always one that pops up, which is the um, the Kojali massacre. So the Kojali massacre is their is their talking point. So when I speak to any Azerbaijani. And they talk to me about all the atrocities Armenians have done, and and honestly, and I start wondering, like, can you explain to me what atrocities you're talking about? Okay, so then it all comes back to this one place, one city, one town called Kojali, and they basically claim that there was um, 600 people that died in the Kojali massacres, and that happened in the 1991 to 94 period of war. Uh, now, I cannot say it's true or it's not true because there isn't enough evidence on our, our end to, to show what really happened. I did some digging and I realized that at the time there was a Russian uh, uh, military group basically in, in that area that ended up you know, going to court for and they, they were tried for what happened at the Kojali massacres. But there weren't any Armenians in that group. So I don't know. Now, I'm not saying Armenians are free of anything. I'm not saying that at all, because I don't know for a fact. All I know is that this whole atrocities thing, all I look and I see when I thought, when I look at history or when I look at even now presently, it's always about an Armenian getting killed. It's always about somebody innocent on the Armenian side being murdered. And, you know, I I don't understand how they can even have an argument when it comes down to atrocities. Now, when it comes down to occupied lands, because that's another thing that I get across from Azerbaijanis, basically, you know, they identify Armenians as occupiers of their land. I try to understand that point of view too, because the land that's in question right now was never officially part of the Azerbaijani country. It, it demanded independence before, while it was in the Soviet regime, while it was part of the Soviet Republic, the whole thing happened before Azerbaijan declared independence, even before Armenia declared independence. So basically the the Artsakh region democratically voted for independence. And then when it wasn't accepted by Azerbaijan and Azerbaijan decided to take uh, military actions against the population, protected themselves and then obviously Armenia joined in to protect and help because they were such a small uh, population that wasn't prepared to protect themselves on their own and then eventually and then at the time the the Russians were supplying arms from both to both sides so they're playing both sides of the coin you know selling their equipment you know getting not getting really involved until the end and then the end I guess something happened when they came in and they started uh, trying to stop the war by going after only uh, the trying to get the Azerbaijani side to stop. And then that's where the Kojali massacres happened. And that's the only place that I know that basically some atrocities have happened in the Azerbaijani side. There's no other area that I know of. And in this recent war, the 2020 war, all of a sudden... We had a news uh, social media outreach from Azerbaijani side saying the Ganja village was bombed and people had died. Now Ganja is pretty far for where the disputed region was from Armenia and, and uh, Nagorno Karabakh, so I I felt like that was a that was kind of like fake news. So I started digging and digging and I found that it was fake news. They had they had set up this whole fake bomb that had exploded. And they created this whole scene with media people coming in. They even had actors or people playing hurt, and then eventually we saw them in other pictures, and we found out that they're just—it was all a role-play mall. So the, the 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 problem is that the Azerbaijanis have lied so much. They have they have so much propaganda. They have have so much fake news that there's there's nothing you can believe anymore. Nothing. I mean, I come across them, and I read most of the stuff, and I interact with some of the people that are actually right now. There's this one guy that's at the at the blockade, and he's been, he was there at the blockade for since day one, doing video videos, say denying that there is a blockade. He's there denying that there's a blockade every day. So I I reached out and I said. Why are you denying there's a blockade when all the videos you're showing only show Russian military and Red Cross uh, vehicles going through? No no other vehicles. I go, there's no civilians going through. I say, I know because my filmmaker is in, in Stepanagert, which is the main city of, of uh, nagorno karabakh Artsakh. And I go, she's stuck there with her family. She can't go anywhere. Their shelves are empty. There's no food coming in you know that this is a crisis and you're basically literally just going out on on video every day and denying that there's that you guys are doing anything and saying that it's a it's a eco protest uh, protesting the mines and the pollution while you know Azerbaijan itself it has the biggest footprint you know carbon footprint uh, one of the biggest ones in in the world when it comes down to pollution and oil so i don't understand how you could be protesting a mine uh, when your country is already one of the biggest polluters so it was just you know but this the, there's a disillusion there in the people where they can't they can't differentiate facts from fiction so when you're having a conversation with them it's almost like you go crazy because they, they just don't understand and it's a weird it's a weird culture so I mean I was born in Canada I mean I I grew up I grew up with you know Western, uh, democratic values, or at least social values. So I know, you know, when I'm having a conversation with somebody, if somebody's telling me something, I can argue that point and then see if there's any facts behind it and evidence. And if you show me evidence, then maybe you can win me over. But don't just tell me something because the, your government has said it to you. And that's what basically has happened, you know, with everybody I've spoken to.
0: Do you think there's any uh, comparisons that can be made between uh, the plight of the Armenians and Artsakh and, uh, say, other people that have, you know, suffered under occupations um, like or have been involved in ethnic? Yes, I was going to ask about the Palestinians. Yes,
1: absolutely. Very similar. Very similar. because. I mean, what Israel does to the Palestinians and, and taking away their lands basically a little bit at a time and then taking away their freedoms and treating them like in you know, a concentration camp at times. You know, there have been times where the Palestinians have said, you know, we're living in a in a, almost like a concentrated camp state, you know, for, for a certain period of time, you know, until Attaq people right now, they're surrounded. There's always a threat every day there's some kind of a, a forward marching for military every day. There's some kind of a issue, like either an assassination Um last, uh, when was it two weeks ago, they assassinated uh, uh, three police officers, you know, just like straight up in their cars, you know, just like you'd see in the Godfather destroyed them completely. You know, it's, It's just it's just this whole terrorizing state, you know, so the whole terrorizing part is there. And that's what my film, uh, you know, it tells the story of these people's lives, their voices to be heard, because in a way, you know, they haven't figured it out yet, but they don't know how long they're going to be there yet. They just they just hope that they're there and they're there in peace, but they still don't know what's happening tomorrow you know, and and a lot of them come across that way when we interview them and talk to them. You know, they just, they, they're hopeful because that's what kind of people they are. They're, they persevere, you know, because they know they've seen it in the past, but they also have no idea what the future is going to bring them. So, and the Palestinians are in kind of the same state. They just don't know, you know, they, they don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And until things clear up, you know, we don't know either on our on our end. So all we do is try to focus on them so that they're not forgotten. You know, and they're they're just their voices are heard or at least they're seen. And it's not just like a little uh, a little dot on the map that basically just kind of extinguishes. You know, and it's not even there anymore because on most maps, Azerbaijanis have gone on and and changed the maps again. You know, t- taken over and then. You know, they want to take half of Armenia as well. That was when I was in Armenia in September, uh, they attacked the border. You know, uh, 250 Armenians died just protecting their own border. And the reason why is because they want the now their whole thing is the Zangezur Corridor. They come up with these storylines that that land was Azerbaijani land and they were kicked out of those lands. This is so much bullshit that they've come up with that it's like, you come up with so much lies and you start believing your lies and now you make more lies to you know back up your first lies this is all it is now all we've got now is a road full of lies and because they have the military power and obviously if you spend enough with pr and you know hire enough uh, agencies you can spin pretty much any story you want and that's what they did with the war in 2020 you know instead of it being a all out attack from azerbaijan it became a a, a conflict, you know. Armenia didn't start a conflict. I mean, it was just going on with their day. You know, they they can't fight military wise. Their population of three million people, uh, compared to Azerbaijan's population of nine million and Turkey's population of eighty million. So you know, you're basically totally outnumbered.
0: I was going to say, uh, you, you mentioned PR firms. Uh, you know, I know that Turkey has has done a lot of PR stuff. Uh, under erdoğan even uh you know basically hiring lindsay lohan uh the the famous actress to you know sort of promote this pro turkish line in various media appearances uh is there sort of a an azeri or turkish lobby that sort of pushes these lines uh within the west
1: yeah there there's definitely a huge turkish lobby and they've been they've been pretty powerful and pretty set in the us and the west the, the the armenian lobby group or at least lobby groups are well behind they've they've done uh a, an amazing job in the last two decades but before then they practically didn't even exist because i mean not- i
0: was gonna say it took us you know 100 years in this country just to recognize the armenian genocide i think it was right. only
1: recognized a, a few years ago yeah. With, Bi- with Biden actually officially recognizing it because Trump had a chance to recognize it that went through it went through Congress, but then Trump vetoed it. And why? Because uh because the showed up all of a sudden and had a meeting with Trump and Lindsay Lo Lindsey um uh what's our senator's name? Lindsey, no, yeah. Lindsey um, Graham? Lindsey Graham, yeah. Lind <laughs> Lindsey Loam. Lindsey Graham. So basically there was a meeting with Lindsey Graham and uh and uh, Trump and uh, erdogan and all of a sudden lindsey graham vetoed the bill in the senate you know to recognize it. that was the year before and then after the war biden basically recognized it right away and it passed through congress flew through congress but it's been hard i mean a hundred years it's not like it's not a factual thing it's 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 a factual history of what happened and Yet it took us a hundred years to fight it. And Armenians didn't know how to do this properly before because they were more into the let's protest, you know, and, and walk the march the streets and April 24th. And I mean, they've been doing this for about 40, 50, 60 years in the US and Canada and around the world. So that was their means of doing it for a while. But then once they realized that there's a there's a game here and you gotta be uh, you gotta have a player in the game or you have to have a horse in the race. They started focusing more on lobbying groups, and then the lobbying groups started focusing more on associating themselves with either senators and house representatives, leadership, and and thus it grew. For a long time, I mean, I remember the very first time anybody in the states um ever came up with the Armenian genocide issue. Was um, oh my god, I I forgot his name right now. But he was a Republican senator that also ran for president one year. He was a war veteran. He had a he had a half or a fake arm. I don't know if you remember him, but he was the first senator that literally brought it to you know Senate to make a vote, but then it failed drastically. And then after him, it was Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff has been a uh, crusader for the Armenian cause for a good, I would say, 20 years or 15 years. He brings it to the Senate or House. It fails, moves on. He comes back again the next year. Every year, he does the same thing. And then recently, in the last maybe five years, we got more momentum and we got more people behind them so you got now Senator Menendez and uh, a couple of other people that started backing the resolution up, and then you know that's how it became successful. So it took a while. Were you, were you like, talking yes, about Bob Dole earlier? Bob Dole, that's right. Okay. Go yes, on. Bob Dole. Yeah, yeah. Totally forgot his name because I had even I was even mentioning him in another conversation of mine in another interview, how he was one of the very few at the time that you know, and the only reason he he knew about it was because his story was when his plane came down. The doctor that operated on him was an Armenian in France, and uh, he 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 found his, you know he found more about Armenians. He did research and then realized oh the genocide, and that's how he became somebody knowledgeable. But most Americans don't know anything about Armenian history. Why would they? You know, and most of them have never obviously never been there. Don't even know where it is on the map. You know, so let alone Arta Nagorno Karabakh, which is another little small region right next to Armenia. You know, right next to outside of the border so it always becomes a bit difficult to explain and and also to make Americans understand that it's important that to care about this and why is it important not because it's a Christian country, okay put that aside and 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 Armenians haven't really focused on the fact that it's the first Christian nation in the world and it's a it's a cradle of Christianity or you know all of that they don't focus on that they focus on the fact that it's a democratic country since its birth. It's trying to stay democratic. It's gone through already now the fourth president of the country within the period of time it's been independent. It's always constantly trying to make the country better when it comes down to democratic values, safety, security, elections, you know, all of the things that are important in democratic values. So this is why we need to protect it. And, and, If Azerbaijan attacked and whatever war crimes they committed back in the 2020 war, if Aliyev was held responsible or liable or accountable, then I don't think Putin would have gone ahead and attacked Ukraine.
0: I, I just want to say real quick, another reason that we should care about this is, you know, if the U.S. wants to say that it cares about human rights, you know, we do have to talk about the situation with Armenians. Uh, we have to talk about Palestinians. I would even say we should talk about things like uh, Western Sahara. Uh, so if we don't talk about these things, we undermine this U.S. message of support for human rights. And that can actually kill a lot of our credibility within the eyes of the world, and especially the global South.
1: Well, you're right, absolutely. But I feel like the, when it comes to human rights, uh, because our, America has been involved in so many wars, that their credibility as just human rights defenders have gone really low, right? And and it doesn't mean in, it doesn't mean that we don't care as the people in America. But yeah. when it comes down to the government of America, when you fight for that human rights angle, they come back. Everybody comes back and says, "Well, you know what? They've done this. They've done this. Why would why? Right. Would what about the care? Iraq
0: War? Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Why would we care if they go out and kill all these people and millions of people have?" you know, cherished over the years above all the wars from Vietnam to all of those wars. Now, that's why I don't go with the human rights angle, because I want to have an argument where people can actually say, why should we care? Now, yeah, you're right. We should care. We should care about every human right uh, situation, violation that's going around. You know, the what's going on in Taiwan now, obviously, is a hot topic. You know, so there's things that are happening around the world that p- the, vi- the rights are being violated, for sure. And We obviously have created organizations to try to protect those rights, but they're not doing a good enough job to do so. But if we look at it as just straight up protecting democracy, right now, the world has been separated. The people that believe in democracy and people that don't believe in democracy. This is what it's come down to. So if you look at just the world itself and you put a a black and white color on it, And you'll see there's much more, like if you say the the white is democracy and black is authoritarian or dictatorship, there's a lot more black than there was before. And that's the problem. And I see it growing. And that's that's where we fear now. Imagine if we live in a world where it is totally authoritarian, where a leader can decide on anything in that country and democracy doesn't mean shit. You know, and this is what we've been fighting for. And that's what really America is about. America is about the freedom and the right for every individual, so that they can live in that freedom and have that opportunity, just like every other individual in that in that country. And that idea has sold so well across the world that it created democracies. It's just that because of what America ended up doing with wars and you know certain things, it, other people like the villains of the world use that, and then obviously. Persuaded or convinced or bought, other leaders and countries, and now and then there's, there's a struggle. There's this tug of war in this world. Where are we going to continue and become more a democratic planet, or are we just going to become a planet where back in the day where let's say kingdoms or you know emperors ruled? Well, now uh, uh, a dictator is going to rule. You know, so is that going to happen?
0: Just a few more things here briefly, since we're talking a little bit about the U.S. Why has the U.S. been in a lot of ways, silent on this issue. Um, and, you know, wh- what about Biden? W- has he done anything or has he not done enough? Uh, what's your take on that?
1: He's done. He obviously, he was the first president to uh, accept the genocide that and, and put it on record. That is a big thing. Obviously, that was one of the big things Armenians had on their agenda to reach and to have in America. But he hasn't done enough. And he hasn't done enough because uh, he has a $100 million um, fund for the Azeris, for military. And that still continues on even after what they've done. So if you have to help you, you know, countries like Azerbaijan with money when they're, so, first of all, so rich, and second of all, they're killing their neighbors with maybe money that you're sending them and buying equipment with it, then you're definitely not on the right side of history. So even though I, I obviously um, want Biden to to see this issue and to, to deal with this issue properly, I know that he's obviously got a lot of things on his plate and maybe the Armenian issue is not high up on that list. Now, why do you say America is not you know loud or doesn't make too much noise? I feel that the the lobbies here, not only the Turkish lobbies, but you also have the Israeli lobbies. And for some reason, Israel is one of the countries that never recognized the Armenian genocide and still hasn't recognized the Armenian genocide. Now, I know the Armenians and the Jews are almost brothers. They're basically cousins. When you look at history and you go way back, everything's... We, we, if Armenians have... You, you cut the out there for a second. Anybody, you said...
0: You said when we look at history and we go back. Yeah, when
1: you when you look at history and you compare, let's say, Armenians' history, you you literally see the Jewish history side by side, rolling in the same direction. Meaning persecutions, uh, Holocaust, genocide. You know, fight to exist, fight to remain, identity, protecting the culture, family values. All of that are side by side, but unfortunately, the governments not the same. Israeli government is completely pro-Azerbaijani. They're allied with Azerbaijan. They're basically supplying them with arms and drones. And, you know, they've taken them over the top when it comes down to making, uh, you know, Azerbaijan a powerful force over Armenia. Now, why? I have no idea. But there's a force there that's fighting and that's keeping the media agencies quiet. Why was it that not a lot of films were uh, greenlit in Hollywood? that had Armenian storylines or Armenian genocides back in the day. There were so many stories that were written for Armenian, you know, storylines and they were shelved. And I know that for a fact, cause I'm in, I'm in that industry. So there was a whole effort to keep quiet the Armenian genocide story and the issue. And I have no idea still, I haven't figured out why, but it, you know, eventually it will come out and I don't know. I mean, we in the diaspora Armenians, the Armenians that are born outside all over the world, you know, we're the only voices really that have, you know fought for the justice in every country. And luckily, you know, funny enough, the genocide drew our grandparents out of uh, those lands and whoever survived, resettled and started over again. You know, my parents were born in Lebanon. I was born in Canada. So you know, we moved around until we came to a point. Now I live in the United States. I'm an American citizen. But it, this was an a struggle to maintain your identity as an Armenian going through all these countries, you know, still maintaining your identity and still integrating to the to the to the society that you live in. And I feel that in the states, there was a uh, an effort to repress the Armenian story, the storyline. and I, I don't know why still and no, not to interrupt you, but do you think I mean, I know we were talking about
0: autocracy autocracy versus democracy, but it does seem like just domestically within the U.S., we do have a bit of a problem. I think with, I think people can be bought off. It's it's like a casino almost, you know, uh, the the highest bidder wins. And I think that's one of the biggest problems we face when confronting these issues because people get bought off to not talk about the plight of the Armenians. Uh, do you think that that plays into this at all?
1: Yeah, it does. They and they were they many people were just bought off. Many people were just you know either. Uh, got a deal to not speak about the Armenians, got a deal to shelf a, a great story that they were going to make into a film. You know, there was a film back in the 70s that they were going to make, 40 Days of Musa Dao, which It's a great little story that Armenian history. And basically they had actors set up and they even signed up actors. And then all of a sudden some of these actors got warned by the the majors at the time that if they would appear in these films, they wouldn't be uh, hired again for any other films. And this went on for a while. Even though there were some Armenian pioneer filmmakers back in the day, you know, that were part of the Hollywood scene, but they weren't enough and as not enough and they couldn't have that much power. So it took a while. And I think Armenians also themselves are, are at fault because they were always brought up in a way where uh, their parents always supported them to become lawyers or doctors or, you know, all those... Main uh, uh, um, basically feels that they feel there's honor to what they do, and if an Armenian wants to be a filmmaker or a writer, you know they're discouraged. So that went on for a while, and you know for a while back, back in the uh, year 1998, I started a show called the Armenian Music Awards. I basically was a was literally the Grammys of the Armenians. And I did that for 10 years. I created that show. I started it. I and, and at first when I made it, everybody was asking me, like, why are you wasting your time? You know, whatever. You know what that created? That created the opportunity for people to have hope that you know they can be who they want to be, you know. And it was that it was important that if they were a singer, if they were a writer, or a poet, or even an actor, that there was a there was a place for them. And we we need that. We definitely need uh, you know, that element in our culture. So now recently, like a band like System of a Down you know, one rock band helped the Armenian cause more than probably all the lobby groups that they had for 20, 30 years prior. You know, so the power of of entertainment, media and film is there. And that's why I'm in this field. You know, I I was
0: going to say, I think, um, you know, of all people, uh, Kim Kardashian. uh, Yeah. Because she's Armenian American. uh, She shed light. She she has shed light in the past on the issue of the Armenian genocide. So these Voices are important to sort of uh growing our consciousness about these matters.
1: She sure, she sure has, you know, and, and somebody like Cher, you know, is another one. So there's you you get to you get to a point where people listen to you and they hear you, you know, like obviously you're either an influencer or a celebrity or an artist, you know, a rock star. Uh it it has a lot of power, you know. So when when you have that on your end, then all of a sudden. You know, you're not just talking to Armenians anymore. You're talking to your fans, and if your fans really love you, you know they'll they'll go and boycott Turkish goods, or you know they'll they'll fight against the war against Azerbaijan, or they'll sanction them uh, so that they won't have a Formula One, things like that. So these are things that are actually that you know work, <laughs> and that's the easiest way to do it is to just create you know celebrities out there, and they have a voice. There was one particularly haunting
0: moment for me in your documentary, in which uh, a woman is being interviewed and she's saying, you know, I I don't even call this a war. This isn't a war. This is an orchestrated genocide. um uh, I, I mean, this does seem to just be an ethnic cleansing ultimately. Could you speak to that a little bit?
1: Sure. I mean, the whole effort of of uh, Azerbaijani attacking in the twenty twenty. Was planned in a way where they they thought that they were going to be maybe within five six days take over that whole area, either kill the people there or drive them out. So, what's the definition of ethnic cleansing or genocide? I mean, it it reaches it hits them right away. The Armenians were not prepared for war. They never spent money in their military trying to back up their defense. You know, unfortunately, they depended a little bit too much on the Russians because the Russians were always their uh, bodyguards or. know kind of like enforcers of the of you know throughout the time of 30 years uh so Armenia just you know focused more on building their you know education system and uh technology market you know and just tourism all the things that you know democratic countries would focus on but they didn't focus on their military now Azerbaijani knew that you know all they did they needed to do though is to figure out how they could go in without losing many lives because they knew that if they they lost a big price in lives that there would be a revolt in their own country and that's where the whole drones came in and the the new style of war you know with the drones where you know they're unmanned they're just going in blowing up you know all kinds of positions of armenian positions and uh, they caught them off guard and you know people in artsakh they they're just farmers you know people that live off the land they're just people that you know have been there for centuries and they don't even have guns, you know. They...
0: What, one of the, uh, not to interrupt you, but one of the horrifying things to me is hearing some of these Armenians in Artsakh and, and elsewhere talk about, you know, th- these are people that actually have had friends and co-workers and family that are Azerbaijani, and uh, it's very sad because, uh, you know, those relationships are sort of torn apart by this, you know, uh, just hateful sort of... Ethnic strife that that the Azerbaijani's are bringing down upon uh, Armenians. Uh, there's even a few figures uh, that that talk about how their Azerbaijani friends told them, you know, it's too dangerous. You have to get out. You have to leave. Um, it's it's just heartbreaking.
1: Very true. And I mean, the, there was one lady that she speaks clearly, and she's in our other film because we we may, we have a second film now specifically on Artsakh and the history of Artsakh and all the pogroms that happened. It, we're not talking about everybody obviously the populations they're, they're fighting within themselves too the azeri population is trying to fight and trying to uh, get rid of their leader or you know their dictator but they're not many and they're not strong so and most of them have already been driven out of the country so the ones that are you know kind of like revolting against them they're revolting from outside and funny enough there's stories where uh, aliyev has sent hitmen and trying to kill these people, these people that are activists that are living in France or Germany, you know, and they've been stabbed many times. I mean, there's there's a few people I've met online that have basically gone through several attacks on their lives. So this is ongoing. It's it's a real thing, and he's Aliyev's doing everything possible, and his government's doing everything possible to eliminate all the people from inside that speak against him. You know, and they imprison, they imprison more people than, you know, most of the countries that are out there. And uh, if you look at journalism or freedom of of press there, there is no freedom of press. If you look at the rankings, when they have these world rankings of, you know, what kind of freedoms people have, you see them rated at the bottom, you know, even though they're a very rich country. You know, so Armenians don't have a problem being friends with Azerbaijanis. Armenians don't have problems being friends with Turks we have Turk friends armenians have uh, armenians still live in istanbul they, they, there's a population there that have managed to stay there even through the genocide and managed to keep their churches even though they couldn't be uh, open about it you know for a long time but now we even have a politician in the turkish senate as you know it got Opalyan, which is fights for armenian causes in the turkish senate so it's possible to move forward if you have an approach where the gun is not the answer, you know. With with your words, you know, with arguments, with you know the, go- the discussions and negotiations, and you know reaching to a point where you can come to terms, not by killing people, you know, and beheading them and cutting their ears off and using it using it in their trophy. You know, they Azerbaijan created a trophy park out of the war of twenty twenty, where they have helmets, they have mannequins like armenian mannequins created in a very ugly way uh so their kids can come in and they can be proud to say look we killed those those armenians i mean what are they trying to teach their youth you know this is it this is the problem unfortunately you know the there has to be a reprogramming of their call in their culture so that they can actually know what their their true history is who they are you know so they can be proud of who they are not Try to steal, you know, somebody else's culture, or try to eliminate another population just because they're told that they're demons or they're devils or they're bad and they're terrible. This is the conversations I always try to have with Azerbaijanis online. Is is that like, can you have a conversation with me because I can have a conversation with you, without using you know false information? I go if you want to have if you want to know history, you can find it. I go just go outside of Azerbaijan and look outside.
0: I was going to say, it reminds me of, you know, in Phili- in the Philippines now, uh, the, the new leader that has uh, come after Duterte is Bongbong uh, Bong Marcos, who, you know, his father, Ferdinand Marcos, was a brutal yeah. dictator in brutal the Philippines. Yeah. And there's been attempts over the past few years to completely revise and rewrite history in the Philippines to make Ferdinand Marcos into a hero. Uh, is this also a problem uh with azaris where there's an attempt to rewrite history and uh, sort of gloss over atrocities.
1: Well, think think about the fact that there's only been one family running that country for since its independence. So it was first uh, when when the war happened there was another president but then once the war ended Aliyevs Aliev's father uh was the president. He stayed in control for a decade. And then, or a bit more than a decade, and then his son he gave it over to his son, and his son is in control now for fifteen years. His wife is the vice president of the country. Uh, his kids own probably the most property in in the country. So it's it's really it's running uh, on nepotism, basically. Yeah, it's absolutely, and it's and for them they don't know any anything else. So whatever they're teaching, whatever books they have in their schools, whatever history lessons they have in their in their classes they're all created so that they look good. Their pictures are up everywhere, you know, and they've only done good for the country and all that stuff. Obviously it's all, it's all bullshit. You know, it's, they've been stealing from their people. They, you know, they, they've been tormenting their people. They've been pris- imprisoning their people. They've been taking the rights away from their own people, but you know, they need to wake up and it's hard when most of the people that know the fact or truth are outside now of Azerbaijan because they had to get away from the country.
0: The last thing I wanted to cover with you is this documentary for me really stood out when I compared it to maybe other documentaries I've seen on humanitarian crises, uh for one very specific reason. I think a lot of times uh when Westerners are introduced uh, to problems in other countries um, that, or, or people in the U.S. I'm specifically uh, talking about. We look at you know the plight of people in you know African countries or or Palestine or even Armenians in in um, Artsakh, and I think sometimes we turn the subject into an object of pity. Uh, Oh, isn't this so horrible? And it is horrible. But, you know, there's more to these people than just misery. Uh, In other words, the subjects you cover, the the people you interview uh, in this documentary, there's more to them than people that are just suffering. Uh, These are people that are persevering, and they're living their lives. And I think they're very strong people. They're not people that are going to allow themselves Uh, to be immiserated by an invading force. Uh, You know, I recall one part in the documentary where you have, you know, a football player saying, you know, I'm still going to play football on this field. And, uh, you know, they're not going to stop me. If they want to kill me, they can. Uh, You know, these are people that have a lot of perseverance, and I think they have a lot of hope, you know, and there is sort of a a hope at the end of the documentary, I think, Uh, you know,
1: there's well, I'm, something... happy, I'm happy you got that also in the documentary because that that is the one thing that kept on going from one person to the other. Because when we started this project, and and I want to clarify also my my filmmaker, my director, my writer, basically she's a young, brave, uh, artsakh girl. Meaning she's twenty eight years old. You know, still young, still have a whole life ahead of her. But she basically is really the person that was able to get all of these people to open up and just be themselves and talk in front of the camera. And obviously you realize it's a non-commentary, non-narrative documentary. We don't have the interviewer asking questions. We don't have the interviewer in the film. You know, we just, we just wanted to have you be transported into a, a, a chair and, and be in their home or be in front of them and just listen to their you know stories so that you can hum- get a human connection with them you know and that's the key yeah, of-
0: no that, that that's actually that's what i was trying to get at and i wasn't wording it very well but i guess i see a lot of media today that comes off as uh, some people have called it trauma porn where it's just just constant trauma and i i do think what you the, the issue you're dealing with is traumatic but you're also showing that these people are fully developed human beings and there's more there than just trauma there's also hope
1: absolutely and and we didn't show any images of war we didn't show you know the uh, actual death we the story that we came across or the, at least what people's voices what they were saying and in, and in, in everything was hope you know that was really the common thread Everybody still holds on to hope after everything they've gone through. And yeah, they are. They persevered through a lot. And, you know, some of them, as you know, they've lost children. They've lost parents. They've lost siblings. Uh, you know, we had a child that was talking about how he lost his father. And, uh, you know, again, a little kid, you know, he, he was uh, 10 years old. You know, he you're wondering, like, this kid could be crying his eyes out every day. You know and not going into a corner, but yet he was still proud and still felt like this was the, the land he wanted to live on and grow. You know, and, and this is it, it was the common thread. You know, from young to old, the common thread was, We don't want revenge, we just want to live in peace, and we have hope that this will happen. And this is it, this is the, the thing that I, I find pretty amazing with Armenians is that, and I and I uh, you know like the the armenians in the diaspora are uh, similar is that you know like my grandparents family tree my my father's side was cut from my grandfather so my grandfather was the was the left or orphan you know so i don't know anything past him right so for me i'm disconnected from my my history also through on his side and yet you know i don't I don't hate it. I don't hold it against Turkish people. I don't hold it ab- because that's not their fault. You know, it, it it wasn't they didn't commit this. Uh the Ottomans at the time did. And obviously that's in the past. Now the only thing I would appreciate is for you to accept it and to move forward and close that chapter. And that's all the Armenians have been asking for, for this for this hundred years is to accept what the the fault was and what who did it. And then move on so we can all close this chapter. And Azerbaijan, at the same time, you know, everything that's going on, Armenians don't want to go and kill Azerbaijan. They don't want to take over their lands, even though historically Ar- Armenians have claims of their lands. If we want to go uh, claims on lands, then we can go all through history and everybody can claim anything, right? Uh, obviously, Native, Native Americans can come up tomorrow and say, well, we want America back, you know? Do you, do you think that
0: that? plays into um
1: uh,
0: Azeri prejudices or anti-Armenian Azeri uh sentiments. This do, do you think they have this fear that okay if we don't do this, the Armenians will come for us eventually. Do you do you think that they're living under that kind of misconception?
1: I think, I think that that message has been kind of sent to them in their brains. And I think the fact that uh they feel they feel that that's a possibility. And I think that the government has used that card quite a bit to push more of their agenda across so that they can install that fear and install that hate at the same time so that now they're fighting for it. And that's why there's this constant fight to erase Armenian identity. You know, there's an Armenian church. It's clearly an Armenian church, but yet they'll come out and say, well, that's not an Armenian church. That's an Albanian Christian church. You know, like, Why would you even come out and try to fight this argument here? You know, it's obvious it's an Armenian church. No, it's an Albanian. Why? Because they want to eliminate every aspect of Armenians of the region. And that fear is there. The fear that, oh, are the Armenians going to come back? And I think the same fear lies with Turkey is that, oh, if we accept it, that we did do this, what's next? Are you going to claim lands back from us? Are you going to claim retribution from us? Are you going to, you know, like all of this? Right. So that fear now. Okay, well, you know what? No, let's deny, deny, deny. And then let's double down, you know. So and then if we have to destroy the rest of them to do so, let's do it. Because at this point, you know, we're going to lose everything if we don't. And that's kind of like the attitude that they're they're taking and Azerbaijan's taking as well.
0: It sounds like starting to wrap up here. uh, It it sounds like the fear is is used uh, to create hatred and then you know, uh, basically justify this persecution and what amounts to an ethnic cleansing while, you know, people like Erdogan are are doing all of this as part of a sort of power grab.
1: Absolutely. Uh, it's a formula. It's a clear formula when you look into it and you see it, you identify that formula. You see the trends. You see exactly how people react to certain things and fear is a, is a very powerful force, especially if it's used a certain way and for a certain population, and in this case, you know, you just make like armenophobia is a true thing. It's not. It's not a word we just created. We had to. We had to put a word to the whatever that we felt that was happening, you know, in Azerbaijan, especially at a starting from a young age. What does a five-year-old, six-year-old know about this until you start programming it in his brain? And by fifteen years old he's already hating Armenians he hasn't he doesn't even really know why like he he knows the information in his head but there is nothing that's happened to him but he hates Armenians and he and all all fake information all falsified information so the fear is definitely being used and you know I, I get it it was funny the the soccer game was going on recently uh Azerbaijan and Sweden and uh, there was a group of Armenians in Sweden that held up a sign saying, uh, lift the blockade in in Artsakh, you know basically that was their sign so the comments obviously from the armenian side was you know hey we had you know the sign up and you know, And then azerbaijani side was uh i can't believe these criminals are you know getting away with what they're getting away with you know and, and like they make it into something it's not dude it's just a first of all it's a it's a democratic country. You're allowed to hold a sign. I'm not. It's not a gun. You know. It's, they compare things. The, the delusion. When I say the de- delusional in that sense is they don't have an idea where beheading somebody holding up a sign that says "Free Artsakh." For them, it's this. It's similar things. So it's like, oh, we beheaded somebody, and you guys held the sign against Artsakh. You guys are the criminals. They can't understand it. But we when we beheaded you, you deserved it because you're holding up signs. That's the way their logic works in their head. So there's there's no understanding on our end because we, we don't live like that. We have never been brought up that way, even the Armenians in Armenia have never been brought up that way. Funny enough, the Armenians in Armenia are even more liberal when it comes down to opening borders with Turkey, opening borders with Azerbaijan. They have no problems with it because they obviously want to build their economy. They're focusing on the country's economy. But if they can trust them, you know, if, if you can't trust the, the, the guy that's going to come and murder you in your sleep like the guy, uh, the, uh, the military officer did to the Armenian military officer when they were on a UN uh, class, uh, you know, in, um, I think it was in Finland or somewhere where an a Azeri guy in the middle of the night with his hatchet went in and literally murdered the, the Armenian military guy in his sleep. And he said, I only did it because he's Armenian. And he laughed at me when I saw him. And this is happening at a UN peacekeeping, whatever, meaning, you know, this happened like several years back. He was tried in the courts, found guilty, and then extradited to Azerbaijan, and then was given a medal in Azerbaijan. So it's like, that's that's the difference. You know, he was given a medal and he was ranked higher in his military. And now he's a free man, obviously, in Azerbaijan and a hero for the country because he murdered somebody in his sleep. I mean, this is the logic that we have.
0: I I was going to ask, do you see any parallels? The the reason I brought up not being a big fan of framing things as like Christians versus Muslims is I I had grown up uh, during the war on terror years. And I, I saw a lot of like really blatant sort of Islamophobia get normalized uh, at times. And it's interesting to me, I do think these anti-Armenian sentiments mirror the sort of really just Islamophobic sentiments that sort of brewed up on the right after the war on terror uh, in the US here. Uh, Do you see parallels between Islamophobia and anti-Armenian
1: sentiments? Well, you know, the Azerbaijani is basically brought in and the turks at the time brought in for the 2020 war jihadist militants in the name of islam so they use islam is the islamophobia meaning like hey our our brothers of islam are under under attack by the crazy christian armenians and you guys have a duty to go and protect your brotherhood so it was used even at the time of the 2020 war and a lot of them from syria were hauled in and they were put into the front line so that they can you know Bear the main uh, casualties, and you know some of the and the reason that came out is because some of the journalists around uncovered it at the time, and then even some of them that were captured as POV POWs in our within our, within the war, they admitted the fact that they were being paid a certain amount of money to come and fight, but they were sold in the name of the you know jihadists uh, fighting for Brotherhood of Muslim. So, yeah, you know you know what it is is people in power use religion all the time you know, for their own benefit. So in this case, whenever it comes, you know, to their benefit, they'll use the card, the, the Muslim card or the Christian card, and then they'll put it against each other and make it into something it's not. And this is not a war about religion. This is not about Christianity against Muslim, you know, even though Armenia is probably the only little Christian nation in that whole area. I mean, Georgia doesn't really count because they're not, they're not even Christian anymore. They're not practicing. They're, they're, probably a country of atheists. But, and Russia lost all religion when basically the Soviet regime was in power. Uh, So all around it, Iran on the bottom, uh, Turkey on one side, Azerbaijan on the other side, you know, they're pretty Muslim countries, even though Turkey is known to be, you know, kind of non-secular. But still, when when the religious card has to be played, they play it, they use it. And they're using it a lot more than the Armenians. Armenians are not using the Christian card or you would have had all of these, you know, storylines where, you know, go save your Christian brothers in Armenia. Or the, You don't hear that much of that, you know. Honestly, I I say it whenever people ask me if it's a Christian country or not, but I, I've never used it as like, oh, this is a religious war. It's never been a religious war to me. It's always been a war of hate and a war of demonizing a population, you know.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess what I was saying was just that, you know, I think, Having hatred of, like, uh, just rank hatred of a, a, a group of people, whether it's Muslims or whether it's Christian Armenians, I mean, it's unacceptable. It's just it's,
1: it's more it, racist than anything, right? That's right. basically, it comes down to just a, a, a racial discrimination of a whole population. So imagine, you know, somebody facing somebody in a room and then he's saying, like, oh, you're Armenian. Yeah, you, I hate you people, you know. Like, you don't even know me. You don't even know. We haven't even had a conversation with each other. Yeah, I've had that online where someone comes to me and says, you're this and this and this. I'm like, you don't even know me. You haven't even asked me a question to find out if, you know, like who I am, what do I believe in? Nothing. You know, so it's like, I don't understand your your train of thought. You think like, just because I'm Armenian, all of a sudden I have a X on top of me. So it's it is, it's definitely a racial profiling of a whole population.
0: So in closing, what do you hope my listeners get out of this conversation? And what do you hope they get out of the documentary, uh, The Desire to Live? Because it's a very, it's an unconventional documentary. It's not narrated. It's just a lot of imagery and just interviews without the uh, interviewer sort of asking questions. You you just hear from these different Armenians and you see the imagery, uh, the, the environment they live in and their lives. Uh, So it's a very unconventional documentary. What do you hope they get out of it?
1: Well, I hope they, they can uh, feel the human spirit in the film. I mean, that's really the most important thing for us is that they can relate to another human being that could be another place in the world that they've never, ever heard of before, but they see some, you know, kind of like resemblance to the fact that uh, they're like me, you know, even though they're living on a farm up on the Hill, but their stories are the same. The families. They have same similar types of families. They believe in similar values. You know, those are the important things. You know, my filmmaker, uh, her name is Mariam by the way. I don't know if I mentioned it, but I mean, she she basically created a film in a sense when it came down to the the style, the the way she filmed it, so that it's really simple. It's not, it's, it's not like in your face in a sense where, you know, some documentaries is so much information going at you and it's like really hitting you hard and you kind of get you know overwhelmed or consumed this is more of a story a human spirit story being told and if you can sense that humanity in their voices in their lives in their eyes and you can connect to them and you can feel inside your heart that the the maybe the the suffering that they've gone through and the struggle that they're dealing with right now and if you want to you know say I stand with Artach or the people for Artach, and you want to reach out to your, you know, Senate representative and say, you know, like I want to see what I can do. That's up to you. No one's forcing it in the film. No one kind of makes the film kind of like, you, you know, you don't get attacked in the film by this, by the story. You just sit back, you sit back and you, you watch and it's, and she shot it so beautifully too, in a sense where, you know, he captures the space captures captures the area. You know, I, I never even knew we had that many towns in the region. You know, every 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 film or every segment, we we have a web series that's three seasons long now, and we, you know we have forty episodes. Every episode basically deals with a different town. I didn't even know we had that many towns and that many little pockets of people living in those towns. I mean, and villages. It's important for uh, Armenians as well, you know, to 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 know and get information but mostly it's important for non-armenians to understand a little bit of of these people's struggle and
0: what do you hope for the republic of artsakh in the future
1: i just want them to be independent that's the only future i see for them to be able to survive you know they they live on this land they they've been there for a long time they they're not going anywhere they're not going to be they're not going to be scared to leave they're not going to be you know terrorized to be pushed out they might they might be killed I don't know about that because that can happen because they, they they don't have the means to protect themselves and right now there's only a mere couple of thousand russian peacekeepers in the way that basically officially keeps them from the hands of the azeris uh the artsakh uh, military goes cuz you know in the 30 years artsakh became its own country, its own kind of like government its own republic its own you know society it's got its own military it's got its own police it's got it's, it's got its own everything you know, it's not Armenia. It was never part of Armenia. It was still part of on its own Artsakh. So they always had a president there. It went, they they went through four presidents, you know, democratically. Imagine a, a, a republic or a state that's not re- recognized by anybody, but yet they have democratic value, values all throughout the time and stuck to it. You know, not one person led that country. There was all kinds of people going through and and culture is very important there. You know, it's 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 really it's an incredible space of of people that have all have history and they believe that that history and the connection to their lands is going to save them eventually. And that's what I hope for. I hope that I hope that in the, they become an independent state uh, or an independent republic, uh, that Azerbaijan decides to respect their borders and just moves on. I mean, what why is it so difficult to just not kill these people? I don't get it. You know, like, why is it so hard for a country that's so big? Because Azerbaijan's quite big compared to Armenia or Artsakh. They have plenty of land. And that area itself, there's no Azerbaijanis that live there. So why are you making it a, you know, the mission? Well, the mission is because Aliyev is a criminal. And to protect himself, he creates Armenia phobia, so that all the people inside his population start focusing only outside. They don't focus inside. So they don't they don't look at him. They don't see what he's doing.
0: Well, I want to thank you again, Peter, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work, watch the documentary, and also if you want to plug the uh, web series that you have?
1: Sure. Uh, Basically, the Desire to Live uh, is the featured documentary and the web series title. So the web series, what we did is we just put it out on YouTube for free. So if anybody wants to watch it, there's 40 episodes of it. All they got to do is... Is type in the desire to live on YouTube and it'll pop up. One of the episodes will pop up and you can follow it. It's not in chronological order, but it is in time order. Meaning like we started filming literally the, the month after the, the, the war stopped and we were airing an episode every week on YouTube for like 30 weeks in a row. So the desire to live doc.com is the website that you can go and see information on the feature film and all the awards it's won. Presently, it's up to 138 awards, that which I'm very proud of. Uh, you know, I used the, the the festival circuit as a platform to spread awareness. That was the goal. And I think I did a pretty decent job doing that. Um, and I'm happy that, you know, it was accepted across the world. We got into like 43 countries.
0: You You cut out there for a second. You said 43 countries and it cut out.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, the documentary has, has participated in 43 countries right now, which is great because, you know, that's the tool of spreading awareness through the festival circuit. And uh, even though the blockade still continues and the Azeris are not lifting the blockade and not allowing people free access still, uh, you know, it's been over 100 days, 107th day today, I think, and throughout the winter. So they cut the gas off and they do all kinds of things just to torture the people so that they can break their will and break their hope but those people, are perse- more perse- perse- they can persevere more than anybody I know, I think, in the world I, as people because the way they've gone through in history. So I wish them freedom, and I'll do my best to spread awareness and do my part. I have a new movie coming up too uh, that's focused on the Artsakh, but if you guys want to check out the website, it's called the thedesiretolivedoc.com, and that site contains pretty much all the links to everything.
0: And thank you again, Peter Balawanian. For coming on Parallax you
1: Views, it. you got it, Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you for your listeners, and I appreciate being on your show and you helping us spreading awareness on this on this issue of uh, Atza. Thank you.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Peter Balwanian, producer of the documentary The Desire to Live, which you can learn more about at The Desire to Live. doc.com As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with J.J. JJ Michael. To Parallax with JJ JJ Views with
1: The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no,
0: basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great
1: anxieties, problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle.